that the purpose of learning isn't just to get a job in the future, <laughs> that you're actually expressing uh, potentialities of reality, potentialities of the universe through human expression and human development. To what extent are the tools you use to measure and describe something damaging the thing that you are measuring and describing by virtue of applying those tools? It's very important where we uh, or how we establish the legitimacy of those vocabularies that are given to us to just tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Like, where do you get the basic language you use to tell yourself your story about yourself? And who says that's the story you should tell about yourself to yourself? Hello, and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Zachary Stein. Zachary has published two books, Social Justice and Educational Measurement, which traces the history of standardized testing and its ethical implications, and more recently, Education in a Time Between Worlds, which grapples with the relation between schooling and technology more broadly. He is the co-founder of the Consilience Project, which is dedicated to improving public sense-making and building a movement to radically upgrade digital media landscapes, and is a scholar at the Ronin Institute. He is also the co-president and academic director of the activist think tank, Center for Integral Wisdom, where he writes and teaches at the edges of integral meta-theory. I hope you'll find the conversation interesting. Zach brings such depth to the responses, to the way he approaches the world. Particularly, I was so inspired by his framing, his bringing forth the idea of storytelling and how storytelling is an act of love an act of consideration, and an act of coming together. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You can also check out Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to your thoughts. Like us, subscribe. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Zach. Well, hi, Zach. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to uh, hearing about what you have done, what you're doing, and, and what you will do after this summer of research, uh, maybe how your ideas have uh, have grown, progressed, uh, changed, altered, or also just some things that are on your mind. I'll start with the question that we ask all our guests, opening up with who are you and what story do you want to tell? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's clearer to me what story I want to tell than who I am, actually. And in fact, uh, that I want to tell a certain kind of story probably means that I'm a certain kind of person. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the most important story concerns, I think, the primacy of story itself, like which is to say that uh, there's one way of viewing story, that story is something that humans make up, that basically the universe is not a story but we make up stories, give the universe meaning thereby. Uh, in fact, it may be that the universe is a story that we are participating in something that would have a narrative arc, whether we saw it or not, um, that would have a telos, that would have a directionality, that would have a meaning and a purpose and a value, whether we were able to see it or not. Um, and so that's at the highest level, it's a philosophical story about, uh, 
this time when we need to overcome nihilism at like planetary scale, <laughs> this time when we need to find a way to think about value and meaning uh, anew. Um, and this is a foundational educational question, right? It's about reconsidering the nature of the good life fundamentally and reconsidering the nature of the universe of the cosmos in which we live, which is a basic facet of religiosity. Uh, so one of the things that I work on a lot is these considerations about the future of religiosity and how they relate to education. And, you know, that way of relating to the world and to each other, where we tell these overarching religious stories about the nature of the cosmos and the role of the human within the cosmos, the role of life and nature and animals and all things within everything. <laughs> uh, these are irreplaceable kinds of stories, um, which used to be the main focus of education. Let's say pre-modern education. Uh, <clears throat> and then we separated church and state and we began to make education fundamentally, uh, it's still telling you a story. It's telling you a story about citizenship and economics uh, and a few other things. Um, but it is specifically pulling back from telling you a story of everything, telling you a story about the nature and the meaning of life. Uh, and for a while that was fine because we still had the religious traditions and modernity was living off of kind of social capital that it inherited from the pre-modern traditions, which were giving meaning to lives and allowing for intergenerational transmission concerning religiosity when the schools weren't doing intergenerational transmission with regards to religiosity. Uh, but slowly the secular, <clears throat> broader culture began to degrade even the remnants that were left. And we arrived at a situation where now the kind of default center of the cultural conversation, which is to say the, the default ideology or philosophy that is guiding our civilization is one that is radically skeptical of value that is fundamentally relativistic um, and overtly telling stories about a meaningless cosmos where there is no free will, where humans create ethical stories to tell themselves, which they layer over top of a universe, which is actually meaningless. This is now, the vast majority of people don't believe this, but it is this, right now in the West, the kind of height of sophisticated cultural philosophical worldview. It's kind of the climax of scientific materialism, perhaps best represented by like a Dawkins or a Harare. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so, so that's at the highest level I'm trying to tell is actually re resuscitating our capacities to tell sacred stories to one another about ourselves and the universe because we we need those stories and some of those stories are true 
Certainly some are truer than others. And it's not a fruitless or illusory task to try to find a better, uh, more adequate form of religiosity to move into the future with. So this is a deeper set of questions. In the context of that, I'm also telling a story about the end of schools, just the, the end of schools uh, coinciding with the end of civilization. <laughs> uh, and that doesn't mean that it's the end of the world, although there is existential risk and catastrophic risk as very real categories, fields that I work in. Uh, but this is more, I would say, a story of civilizational transformation and the very fundamental aspects of our civilization as we know it, which is now planetary at the level of infrastructure, social structure, and superstructure. Uh, you're in a situation where <clears throat> um, schools are going to transform radically, very radically. Um, and the things we think of as associated with school and schooling uh, will not will not really be there, I would argue, in a decade. Um, uh, and this is hard to get, but you have to understand that school as we know them came into being. <laughs> uh, they are uh, an historical creation, a kind of interesting experiment in socialization and intergenerational transmission, but most of human history didn't involve schools as we know them now. And uh, the rest of humanity will likely live in societies that are not dominated by the kinds of schools that dominate our societies now. So the question of what's the emergent educational configuration that replaces the school as we know it, this is a story we have to consider. It's obviously digital. <clears throat> it's obviously global or planetary. Um, and it obviously factors uh, more of what we know about the sciences of learning and more of what we know uh, about the, the dangers of wedding socialization mechanisms entirely to economic systems. Um, so there's a bunch of things I lay out in my books talking about design principles for future kind of educational systems and related assessment infrastructures. And uh, so that's another story that I'm telling you, the kind of end of schools story. Um, which I think is a very exciting story. Some people think it's crazy or uh, scary even, but I actually think it's amazing. We have a, a chance now to radically reimagine one of the foundational systems of our society. <clears throat> and we're actually responsible for doing that because the technologies are changing in such a way that this thing is gonna be different. <laughs> whether we take responsibility for it or not, mostly because of the digital and AI in particular. Uh, so it's like a moment where we have a responsibility to do a kind of constructive imagination. Sometimes I call it a concrete utopian theorizing where we actually really think about schooling uh, as ending because there's a renaissance of education, right? That the end of schools takes place in the context of a, of a possible renaissance of education. So this is the paradox, I think, of our time, and we feel it, which is that the digital seems to portend some kind of like radical educational opportunity. So it seems to offer us. And it's not, I would argue, not doing that <laughs> yet. 
in some cases for some people it certainly has but on the whole uh at least most people's time with the digital is involved in more or less attention harvesting addiction inducing social media technologies especially in the west So we have not actualized the educational potential of the digital, not even close. And there's still this ambient sense that somehow the digital is a huge gift for us in terms of socialization and intelligence and learning and things of that nature. Um, so, so yeah, so something's got to shift. Major reconfigurations need to take place where instead of the digital kind of competing against the school <laughs> and then the digital basically uh the digital treating the next generation uh as a manipulable exploitable resource specifically their attention and their their cash um, and so moving the digital from a realm of intergenerational exploitation which is what is happening now. We have the older generation creating technologies that radically disrupt the attentional systems of the younger generation and put them in a position to be manipulated to digital technologies enabling intergenerational transmission rather than intergenerational exploitation. Uh, so, so that's part of that story that I'm also telling. Schools, the end of schools, something new. And this is the part where it's very difficult for me because there's so many threads that I want to pull on. And as I mentioned, the second question we always ask is, how do you define learning? Now, from there, we'll springboard, and I'm going to come back to some of these. Let's, let's just start with that. How do you define learning? How do I define learning? Huh. <clears throat> well, so I had, you know, I work across a bunch of disciplines uh, as Almost any educator has to work across a bunch of disciplines. But I had a lot of formal training in developmental psychology and the Neo-Piagetian tradition of developmental psychology specifically. Um, so I could talk for an hour about this question of what is learning. Like we can talk in very close detail about what learning looks like at different levels of development. Um, and the difference between development, which is a kind of, I would say, macro process over longer time scales <clears throat> and let's say learning which occurs sometimes by the second uh, or the minute and then learning kind of compounds upon itself and builds up these larger structures which then accumulate in the psyche and result in a kind of cumulative qualitative development over the course of the lifespan which is like another way of thinking about deep learning uh, whole lifespan learning learning that takes decades to occur, as opposed to learning that occurs, you know, with a couple hours of repeated practice. Um, so it's a huge phenomenon. Uh, I believe in some sense at its deepest philosophical uh, way of being considered, learning is coterminous with evolutionary process. Uh, that the the thing we experience phenomenologically as learning, like, holy crap, I just like know something I didn't know before and I can do something I couldn't do before, uh, <clears throat> is comparable to the expansion of, let's say, life 
through evolution itself or life what is it doing it is solving problems basically <laughs> by almost any even to your most reductive evolutionary theories life is finding a way even through random chance to eventually solve problems so there's a way to model human learning as continuous with biological evolution and recharacterizing biological evolution as itself a kind of cosmic learning process and this is Piaget, and this is what Piaget was saying in, in biology and knowledge. He was looking at the isomorphism between structures of biological adaptation and cognitive adaptation, which is to say the way our cognitive schemas <clears throat> adapt to and adjust to objective invariance in the world through our action upon them, similar to how through groping in evolutionary time, you get the adaption of organismic structure and to niche and niche creation. So there's a something quite deep there, um, which again comes back to my first point about we can be woven into a cosmic story um, where learning itself and human development itself, which is to say the deepening of one's own capacity, the deepening of collective capacity, uh, can be understood uh, in a quite profound way that the purpose of learning isn't just to get a job in the future, <laughs> that you're actually expressing uh, potentialities of reality, potentialities of the universe through human expression and human development, similar to these notions of Bildung, which you find in the kind of German romantic tradition, inspiring a lot of uh, European educational reform, this kind of deep, strain of thinking that ennobles and dignifies human learning for its own sake um, <clears throat> as opposed to human learning as instrumentally valuable for let's say economic productivity so it's a little a little bit of what i would say uh, again at the individual level um, and over short time scales like a week right um, that's how many people think of learning. Uh, what can the kid do in a semester? What did he learn over the course of the semester? And uh, so but I would argue that there's, there's like many different scales at which learning occurs. And I always think of this Emerson quote where he says, you learn to ice skate in the summer. Uh, and anyone who has complex skills knows that there are times when you work really hard on something and you put it down walk away you don't think about it for a week or weeks you come back to it and you and you pick it up again like an instrument or a sport or even a book and also you're operating at a higher level as if you consolidated knowledge and capacity subconsciously <laughs> while you were doing something else which 100 percent occurs so learning is very mysterious and powerful uh and um yeah you it's one of the most important things you can study as a philosopher, I think, which is interesting because philosophers tend to study knowledge, which is great, but usually knowledge is conceived as like this static endpoint. And I've written a couple of philosophical papers where I talk about the cognitive maturity fallacy, which is the fallacy philosophers make in epistemology, the study of knowledge, uh, that when we're, what we're interested in is the final state of knowledge, true final knowledge. Whereas what Piaget would say in response to that precise statement by analytical philosophers, he would say, no, what we're interested in is 
assurance of proper learning, that learning is primary to knowing, and that if you can know you're learning well, <laughs> then you don't have to worry about the final end state of all total knowledge because you're, you're moving in the direction of it. Right. And I'm back to cosmic story. It's not about the final end state of all things, <laughs> but it's about a certain directionality that seems to be revealing a kind of plot line. Uh, and this is the case in cognitive development. If you are working hard in a domain, <clears throat> um, through your interaction with the realities implicit in that domain, you will come to understand reality. There will be a telos of your thought and conception towards a best possible conception, right? Uh, so, so yeah, so learning also teaches us that we are not alienated from reality. <clears throat> learning teaches us that we can become more intimate with reality, um, that the human nervous system, our bodies, allow us to touch reality, to understand it, um, which is, I think, also worth noting <laughs> in a culture that tends to think there's no such thing as a shared objective reality or that the way to get to truth um this is easily disproven <laughs> by young children who uh learn how to bounce balls and reliably predict space and time and circumnavigate rooms and do a whole bunch of other things that require the nervous system itself to attune to invariant properties of reality like weight and friction and other things which later become conceptualized and even put into formal mathematics but you don't have to be a scientist to be trafficking in truth and the real uh, and so learning teaches us that as well um, that's its secret kind of irrespective of what you've learned Irrespective of what you learned, the fact that learning is possible uh, is really good news. Um, uh, so I could just, like I said, I could talk for hours. It's a deep, for me, both philosophical and uh, psychological um, topic. So yet again, many, many threads. I would offer you two to pull on. One is this question about learning about you, you mentioned a, a child with a ball and and being able to do understand friction and so forth but then there's of course this other world this quantum world that we just don't understand and maybe i wonder what your, re your response would be to sometimes we learn that it's okay to, to work with the unknown and to be able to navigate this universe and ourselves in these moments with the unknown um actually yeah let, let's go with that and and then we'll, we'll go back to storytelling how does that work? This this working with the unknown and being comfortable with it, or uncomfortable, but comfortable with our discomfort. Right. No, I mean, and this is uh, again, there's a bias in our culture, I think, because of the way, God bless it, science has proceeded. Science has proceeded, kind of in invading the unknown and creating more stuff that's known, um, which is great. Uh, but to learn, you need to be more concerned in some ways with what you do not know than with what you know. And if all you can see is what you know, then you'll stop learning. You actually have to be able to see what you don't know yet. So good learners uh, will often experience that. It's like a discomfort. Like the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. 
uh, as this is especially true for me as a scholar, right? Cause it's like every book contains hundreds of books, <laughs> which you could then read. So there's an ever expanding field of the unknown, which accompanies the expanding field of the known. So this is important to get. It's not like the more you learn, you've kind of conquered the universe. And now eventually you'll get to a point where everything is known. Uh, in fact, it seems to be the opposite that the deeper you learn, the more awareness you have of what you don't know. Um, this has been in my experience, at least with people who are very serious lifelong learners. Um, one of the liabilities of certain forms of schooling is that they present fields of knowledge as if uh, one, like fields of knowledge uh, as if they are complete. That this, for example, like a biology textbook, if it's poorly written, and you've seen these, uh, it basically says like the state of existing biological knowledge is either it or very close to it. <laughs> like we're, we're right there. <clears throat> Whereas when I speak to people who are very advanced in biology, they are overwhelmed with mystery often. So this is a paradox, I think, and it's something that needs to be instilled in good teaching and good curriculum is that it's not as if, oh, um, learning is a finite journey uh, and that the ratio of known to unknown switches and that eventually you're in a position where there's less stuff you don't know <laughs> than stuff you do know. Uh, not at all. Um, not at all. Phenomenologically, it's the opposite. Um, uh, those people who those people who believe they they know it all usually are very poorly informed, <laughs> uh, and those and those people who are, um, you know, again in awe of the mystery. Often, it's not because they haven't tried to figure it out; it's because they have exhausted all cognitive means possible to try to figure it out with existing models and and metrics, and it still exhausts complete understanding and representation. Um, so yeah, so there has to be sometimes it's called like a negative capability. Uh, sometimes it's called an awareness of what might be called dark knowledge. So dark knowledge would be knowledge of what you do not know. This is a concept that I was working on with Kurt Fisher. Uh, my advisor is a cognitive developmentalist and we were trying to explain that phenomenon. Of like there are some people who are really good at not just knowing what they know, but seeing how what they know shows them a bunch of stuff they do not know. And that's this capacity to see the dark knowledge to see the edges of what you know and to allow what you know to illuminate the darkness of what you don't know if that makes sense <laughs> so it's a strange it's a strange thing so that's all there and then i believe a lot of that again is modeling by good mentors and teachers comfort with the discomfort of not knowing a lot of what locks in kind of know-it-all syndrome or locks in people fooling themselves into believing that they're very close to basically understanding everything there is to know about a topic uh, is that it's an emotional kind of wish fulfillment kind of defense mechanism uh, kind of thing happening there if you will um, uh, so i think some of uh, some of what makes for good teaching and learning is in modeling the emotional capacities to be a good learner, not just 
study skills and note taking, you know, and other things like that. It's actually like, okay, what does it feel like to start a new research project? Right. And to like have a 300 page book with a bibliography that's got like 800 books in it and realize like somehow you have to come to understand all this. And you, and even that's been pared down, even those 800 books. And even that's been hugely pared down. You know, so like that's, that's a manageable task, like reading that book, extracting the next steps after reading it. Uh, so yeah, so there's a, there's a kind of a maturity, I think that is necessary for lifelong learning. Um, whereas, uh, and a kind of resilience that's necessary for lifelong learning. Um, whereas the easier route and often the route that there's no other, it's like the route that almost has to be taken because of how difficult it is to get by in our society, uh, which is not to engage in lifelong learning and to kind of like find a place where you can be settled into full knowledge and competence and so this is kind of like the you know um, this is one of the reasons we over bureaucratize roles that would otherwise involve a lot of complex considered judgment and lifelong learning because um, it allows people to settle into a manageable definable task um, so we're doing this to doctors and teachers a lot where we give them these checklists. We just basically say, okay, someone's coming in. Here's how you handle it. That's all you need to know, basically. Um, uh, and so, yeah, there are ways that we uh, encroach upon the unknown uh, and shield ourselves from it in ways that are not good for future learning, if you want to put it that way. So. So yeah, so getting comfortable with the unknown is important, especially when civilization is undergoing major transformation, because we, we do not know what things will look like <laughs> for people who are now, let's say, 10 years old when those people are in their 60s. Uh, we do not know what it will look like. And so we, we should not pretend to know in order to ease our own emotional discomfort um, and so what does education look like from that perspective where you actually admit that you do not know the world that the kids are going to be going into um, again i think that's an exciting question uh, but it is a daunting question and, and is different from other times in history where you kind of could know <laughs> Uh, you kind of could know what it would be like for them. At least it, it was reasonable to think that. Now it's unreasonable to think that. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop there. That's all I said. And I want to bring up this, what you just mentioned about modeling the, the emotion behind not knowing and learning. And then I think back to the storytelling and the fact that storytelling being, um, I mean, since, since the advent of language, what, 50,000 years ago, and how storytelling uh, doesn't require writing, it can, and how, I, I, I suppose I, I read that it, it develops oxytocin and, and, and rushes of oxytocin in the brain, which is the same chemical that uh, mothers feel when, when, when they're breastfeeding. So, so there's clearly a chemical of love through storytelling. I'm, 
I'm also thinking about storytelling being something that is also interpretive, interpreted, where you you put in your character in the storytelling. I mean, unless unless you're reading some boring chronicle, you're 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 bringing people around a fire, or I don't know. I'm thinking about you know the the most rudimentary idea that we have, and yet. And you also hinted about this. We try to tell the story of each kid for each semester and, and not even tell that story, reduce it to a number or a letter. That's the complete dehumanization of the experience. How, and, and one more thing that you brought up about these competencies that, um, that, that, are, that say just how worthy you are to, to fit into the capitalist machine, that's also the story that we're telling because we choose to signpost with creativity, communication, collaboration, and all these things for the workforce. How, how, do we, how do we go back to this, again, these connections of love and, 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 and the emotion that comes with learning rather than storytelling that's fit for purpose, which is capitalism? Right. Interesting. <clears throat> so there's a lot of places to go there. Yeah. So one of the things I was very concerned about when I started to study standardized testing was the way it allowed parents and teachers and students to tell stories about the minds of students using terminology and numbers that were demonstrably inadequate and actually kind of dangerous to use to tell stories about people. Right. So it's kind of interesting that for a long, long time, we had what I would call languages of evaluation or languages even of strong evaluation, which is a term that Charles Taylor uses to describe religious language. These are the languages we use to describe the things that matter the most to us <laughs> and to describe how you and I are doing with regards to those things. Uh, and so this would be often in the language of folk psychology, right? What does the kid want, <laughs> right? Like, is he a good kid? Um, like, uh, you know, can he control his emotions? Um, is he sociable? Uh, and even stuff from psychoanalytic theory and other branches of psychology is relevant and useful sometimes in telling a more comprehensive useful story about someone's mind. But scholastic aptitude as a single number, IQ as a single number, a report card that ranks the kid in terms of A, B, C, D, and F, which are literally taken from the factory model of grading the quality of outputs of factory production. Like you get grade A beef, it's the same thing, literally from the same time in the 1840s. Um, so there's a whole bunch of basic vocabulary and frameworks and models that now we're using to describe kids and that's the way they describe themselves. Uh, and it's actually alien. It's, it's, I've used the term alienation here twice, but it, and it's interesting, but like it's alienating them from their own uh, capacity to understand themselves. Which is, which is bad, which is the opposite of what education should be doing, right? Uh, so there's this question of like, to what extent are the tools you use to measure and describe something uh, 
damaging the thing that you are measuring and describing by virtue of applying those tools. Um, and then deeper than that is, are the results you're getting, are the numbers and categories that this thing is now put into, um, is that the best way to relate to that thing? Or is that just the only way you can get a number about that thing? <laughs> uh, and this ends up being a lot of what it looks like. It ends up being like, um, we need a certain kind of quantitative objectivity to ease bureaucratic decision-making. So we want quantitative kind of like evidence for our large scale resource allocation decisions in a bureaucracy. And so therefore we, we kind of need to measure these kids <laughs> and get simplistic numbers because of the way we've set up the incentives of cost benefit analysis uh, and investment and return on investment with regards to these schools, the school systems is one of the reasons these things have to go is <laughs> because they end up locking us into a system of financial incentives that requires these kinds of quantitatively driven cost benefit analysis, return on investment analysis things, which we have to put in place if we're going to run large expensive bureaucracies like this. So this is, so the, so that would be okay if then we just use that stuff for decision-making, but then we pretend these measures that were developed basically for bureaucratic purposes, we pretend that they're psychologically insightful uh, and useful in describing. Um, uh, and so that, uh, yeah, has given us a dangerously thin and objectifying ways of telling stories about children, right? Um, and then the ones that get more robust usually are just clinical language <laughs> from, let's say, the DSM. There's a whole other thing, but that's a measurement infrastructure there. So the categories of ADD, ADHD, obstinate defined disorder, <clears throat> these again are uh, bureaucratically useful diagnostic categories which get imported into self-understanding. Um, and then you have kids believing that their brain is broken because they don't do well on standardized tests. And so that's a combination of the standardized testing causing self-objectification, reducing learning to performance on test. Absence of performance on test means medical problem. This is what we've done. We've medicalized academic underperformance. <laughs> uh, and then you're into a different diagnostic set, which is DSM categories, and then you get uh, biomedical intervention, usually a stimulant medication. Uh, so I won't get into all of that, but you can see how there's a cascade of misunderstanding um, and a kind of like narrowing of the valid, narrowing of the kinds of stories that one is allowed to to tell about oneself and one's own child, for example. Um, so yeah, so a lot of what it would mean to move out of that paradigm would be to not remove accountability and assessment, which is what most people think when you're like, start to talk the way I was talking that, oh, well, this guy's an anti-testing guy. And you know, like he, this is not the case actually. Um, I would argue that for standardized testing, in the way that we know it now, schools were much more rigorous places of learning. 
this is a longer argument, but I think the evidence is starting to stack up that our schools are not getting better as a result of more testing. Um, uh, and in fact, testing the way we do it oversimplifies the task of learning to the extent that you can routinize test preparation and pretend that you're engaging in learning and you've completely incapacitated kids with any real world things. So putting in place a different kind of assessment infrastructure could radically improve student performance if the assessment infrastructure used categories and concepts and languages of evaluation that were ennobling and actually deepened self-understanding. <laughs> uh, and this is completely, it's completely possible. Uh, it's completely possible. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's very important what we tell ourselves about ourselves. And it's very important where we uh, or how we establish the legitimacy of those vocabularies that are given to us to just tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Like, where do you get the basic language you use to tell yourself your story about yourself? And who says that's the story you should tell about yourself to yourself, right? Like, uh, and this has been back to the broadest possible story we can tell about ourselves. Are we uh, meat machines? that evolved randomly in a cosmos for no reason, driven fundamentally by hormones and neurotransmitters that make it so we're not really responsible for our behavior, designed basically to compete to the death to propagate our own genes. Like, huh, that is a story that many people are being told to tell themselves about themselves. Right? Uh, huh, is that a true story? Who says? Like, um, so this is, this is maybe deeper than what you're getting at, but this, this is what I, this is what I think is that we're given these languages to tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Um, and, uh, the ones we are using today are very different. In some ways are very similar, but in other ways are very different from, from the stories we have traditionally told ourselves about ourselves for, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, uh, so. So yeah, and school is the place where that is primarily happening. And also the screen, you know, the, the, uh, the digitally, um, digitally intermediated socialization um, is now uh, main, uh, one of the main effects in intergenerational transmission. And, and I, I'm not sure it is actually, um, you know, so, something that, that is all surprising, these stories we tell ourselves, because if we think about the metaphors that we use that shape ideology, just the mechanistic language that that we have when, for instance, you know Daniel Pink's book Drive, yeah, great book's got a lot of good stuff in it. He uses the word drive, which is a very mechanistic area. So, so right there, that mm -hmm. frames already what we're going to read, but with the front mm -hmm. cover. And there's no reason if we say that for society, if you think about fractals, that shouldn't apply to us by any stretch of the imagination. Progress. Uh, all, you know, development, all these linear ways of thinking, um, and I want to hit on on what on on this idea of uh, of, of the digital, um, and I, I'd like to get your feel on the tension between the digital, which connects us. You're in Vermont. I'm in Thailand. It's literally the other side of the world. Yeah. Twelve hours difference. Um, it's you know, COVID has done one thing that's great is that it's it's okay now to call people up. You know, it's not weird like on Skype like it used to be. Um, and at the same time, the, the, the planet is in a situation where we have to um, limit 
the, 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 the travel, limit the transportation, limit the traffic. Uh, I learned a new word this week, flight shame, <laughs> the, the, the shame of taking an airplane because of, of, uh, of the carbon footprint. And so I wonder where the tension is, and it doesn't have to be a bad tension, it could be a wonderful, productive tension between being able to connect digitally and at the same time having to live more locally on a physical level. How, how does that play with schools? It's a complex question because it is easy to overlook the footprint of the digital. Well, this is true because it, it is also so massively carbon intensive. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. massive. That, that is, yes, that is. The idea that there's like flight shame, but somehow there shouldn't be like the shame of buying a new computer, for example. Uh, the question of which of those is actually worse for the environment is an interesting question. And for blockchain enthusiasts and cloud computing enthusiasts, the question of the actual electrical throughput necessary to maintain current rates of cryptocurrency trading, for example, uh, pose serious, serious problems. Um, and the vast amount of server space, rare earth minimal, rare earth mineral minings. We're living within this vast and expanding planetary computational stack, which is a term that comes from Benjamin Bratton. Um, and that thing, the planetary computational stack, is the main ecological event right now. Um, more so than, let's say, carbon emissions, uh, is the planetary computational stack the main event? Because the planetary computational stack uh, is what, at the end of the day, will be moving the supply chains around. The Internet of Things, AI-enabled supply chain optimization, for example, um, AI-enabled flight routing <laughs> places the airplanes within the data surround of the planetary computational stack. So the, the digital is supplanting the geographical, uh, but it is not to this point relieving the race we're in with planetary boundaries. So just moving everything to the digital does not avert ecological catastrophe. If we run the digital the way we're running it now with the forms of energy we have and the basic forms of manufacturing that are currently primarily uh, used here, even geopolitically, we can't sustain the current thing. Like, for example, microchip, microchip production being almost entirely taking place in Taiwan is a geopolitical nightmare. Um, that's the result of the way we built this planetary computational stack without a lot of forethought. Um, so, so, yeah, I do think we're looking at more uh more need to relocalize um our uh ambitions um so in my second book i talked about this educational hub network which basically is a way that you could turn an entire city into a school um, and so in this context, the digital technology isn't used to do what we're doing. That's like the last thing you want to do with digital technology in an educational context is this, I think. <laughs> My model is that the digital technology enables a time and skill sharing network 
and the time and Skillshare network enables uh, for kind of like machine learning driven interest aggregation and pop-up classroom creation. So if you imagine you're walking down the street in this city and you're seeing everybody, uh, everybody walking by everybody else, there's a hundred different teacher-student relationships that could spontaneously occur there. Like this guy wants to learn piano. That guy's really good at piano. Like this guy would like to learn plumbing. Like that guy's a fucking plumber, right? Uh, this kid wants to learn Spanish. That woman's from Spain, right? So it's like, there's all of these potential educational relationships woven into the fabric of the community, implicit, not explicit. And in most prior village type setups, let's say, before you get to large European cities, but even with that, in them, they had neighborhoods where it was like um, spontaneous educational configurations would arise. Kids would be routed into guilds, kids would be routed into field work. And I'm not saying like, let's go back to <laughs> the feudal, uh, feudal educational systems, but I am saying that there's something about an awareness of the educational possibilities that surround everybody all the time. Uh, so what the Education Hub Network does, it's a kind of a minimal digital infrastructure that allows you to register, register your time and skills, uh, what you want to learn, what you can teach. Um, and then the education hub network essentially allows for a thousand, a thousand different classrooms to occur every day, each one different from the prior day. Uh, and these are people getting together in person. That's the point that the digital, the best educational technologies that are digitally based should have the digital put you away from the digital. <laughs> Like the, the, the digital shouldn't draw you further into the digital, which is what it does now. You just get in a rabbit hole and you think you're learning and you're probably learning a lot of stuff, but you're also just getting, you know, getting YouTube a bunch of advertisement profit because they're just algorithmically keeping you on the screen, right? So the, I think the optimal educational situation for the digital is that you spend as minimal time with something like the screen as possible uh, and are the screen directs you or helps you scaffold you into a situation to do something that's not digitally mediated. Like, you know, go out into the woods and gather a bunch of data with this thing and come back and plug it into the computer or, you know, meet over in that coffee shop where five people are discussing this book and everyone like, so that it, the routing from actual embodied experience to embodied experience being enabled by the digital, as opposed to the digital disabling the possibility for embodied experience, <laughs> which is what it's doing now. Um, so that's the way uh, uh, I think about digital technologies. I think we're in a weird intermediate zone now. When Web3 comes on and you start to get wearables, you start to get augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, and then you start to get AI tutoring systems. Um, and then we are going to have a kind of race between these two kinds of digital education. We will have one that looks a little bit like the one I'm describing and I'm not like spearheading that, but I've seen it occurring in a lot of places where a new premium is placed on in-person embodied interaction and the digital allows for the right kind of in-person embodied interaction. The digital as a scaffold to a new premium on local in-person education. The other route is that the digital obsoletes and replaces in-person communication that you get 
in, kind of embedded in a virtual educational environment where there's an AI tutor who knows literally everything about you and also knows literally everything on the internet <laughs> and then is able to incredibly charismatically multimedia dynamically give you an overwhelming uh, educational experience. So there's this whole conversation about the future of AI tutoring systems and what that ought to look like. Uh, and that's coming fast. And there's a lot of people who want the AI tutoring systems to replace teachers. Like that's the goal. <laughs> uh, and um, so, yeah, so that's how, so it's moving fast. Um, in terms of the ecological footprint, like I said, I, I don't know. Like um, that's where I'm at with, I, I believe the ecological footprint of the digital uh, as it is currently expanding and growing is actually a lot worse than people are, people are willing to look at. Um, it, even just electricity alone, let alone like the number of pounds of water it takes to make my Mac. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, listen, Zach, I'm conscious of your time and I really appreciate uh, this conversation. Um, what's, what's next for you? What's, what's next on your horizons? Uh, publishing some books, hopefully in the next year with some writing colleagues and, uh, you know, trying to build, uh, my own version of this, trying to build a school, trying to, trying to capacitate people. Um, so yeah, that's about as much as I'll say. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are, as always, in collaboration with Intrepid and News. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out Intrepid News on www.intrepidnews.com. And I've had this little habit of giving you many, many URLs, the Wiser Framework on www.wisr.life. Again, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we really look forward to your comments. We look forward to your feedback. Uh, subscribe, list five stars. And in the meantime, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.